Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. I'm sure you've seen the movies, whether sci-fi or action, that encompass the power of nature. Immediately, I think of the hit movie Twister and its scary depiction of how powerful tornadoes can be, or some other cinematic examples like the movie Armageddon or 2012 or Dante's Peak. All extreme examples of natural disasters, but nonetheless terrifying. And because of my affinity for these kind of movies, I vividly remember in 2011 waking up and turning on the news as I'm getting ready for the day and wondering why the news was playing a sci-fi movie, showing an incredibly powerful tidal wave swallowing towns whole. The problem was, it wasn't a movie. It was a real video of one of the worst tsunamis on record to hit Japan. It was absolutely horrifying. Now, that real tidal wave was certainly different than the Hollywood versions, but what I never imagined as I watched in terror was what this episode is all about. You see, today we're focused not just on the power of the disaster, but how that power could be used. What am I referring to? Stick with us and find out on this episode of The Missing Chapter. Welcome to The Missing Chapter podcast. You're here with Phil Horner and Phil Schaff. We are sitting down to one of our favorites, one of our favorites. We've done this for a long time now, Phil. We've presented a lot of different uh, episodes from The Missing Chapter, and we've drank a lot of different coffees. And this was one of our favorite. It's Utica Coffee Roasting Company's very own Adirondack blend, which is just dark enough, just sweet enough. It's it's really, I don't know, like I said, one of our favorites, and it's it's our go-to. We don't know what to brew. We brew Adirondack. And there's sometimes where you don't need a, a flavored coffee. Just the flavor of coffee itself is enough. This is right. one of those perfect ones. Yeah, and we're we're getting into December, and um, you know, it, we have a, a lot of great episodes kind of on the docket that we're planning for, um, and we're also going to plan, uh, which we've done in years past, seasons past, a special holiday sure. uh, episode that we'll probably release around uh, Christmas Eve. But you know, Phil, we have a lot to be thankful for. Yes, we're in absolutely. the holiday season, uh, time of reflecting, and we've we've had a lot of great episodes which have allowed us to have a lot of interaction with our, with our listeners, either, you know, personally or via email or through social media. Um, and so just a general thank you to everyone for their continued support and, and, and listening and, and helping, you know, share in what we have enjoyed over the last couple of years. And it's, it's so entertaining for us, especially when we, when we look every day at, Hey, how do our numbers look for our podcast? Right. And it, it's a, it's amazing and humbling at the same time to see the numbers go up and up with uh with so many people reaching out. So it, it's so much fun for us. And I hope you guys are entertained as well and educated because that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. Exactly. And speaking of uh, future episodes, I think we got to mention here too that uh, coming up very soon, we're going to have a very special episode, maybe even a two-part episode with the senior editor, Aaron Gold, uh, senior editor of Motor Trend Magazine. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, absolutely amazing. The, the outreach that Motor Trend has, you're talking... I think it's uh, without looking specifics, 30 million people worldwide. Wow. Um, uh, such a far outreach on social media, especially. But so Aaron Gold is a, a phenomenal guy. He's hilarious and knows his stuff when it comes to history. 
cars and everything in between. So we're going to have a really special episode with him and most likely a follow-up episode later on uh, because like us, he loves talking history mm-hmm. and he loves sharing stories. So right. why not why not do both um, in a couple of different episodes? Sounds great. Gives us something to look forward to. And speaking of looking forward to, I know this is one that you've enjoyed putting together hey. for us, Phil, and I'm, I'm anxious to hear. This is one of those those stories where you, you start getting down the rabbit hole and you're like, there's no way this is true. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of shocked that I haven't heard this, this, um, this project before, but I think the old saying is very fitting here that, that desperate times calls for desperate, uh, desperate measures, excuse me. But I think if we look at World War II for the Allies specifically, I think that the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor for the U.S., um, you know, the lengths that, at which the Japanese would go to win the war, I think those are, the, those are those moments where it was like the shock and awe factor, like the complete surprise. I know some people were kind of aware of, J- uh, of Japan's uh, inner workings, and maybe some people have said they expected an attack. But either way, I think as a whole, from history's perspective, this was what, what turned the tide of the war because it, it really you know, w- awoke that sleeping giant. Yeah, right? and you know, it, 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 it's a testament to what was at stake, too. I think people understood exactly what Nazi Germany and, and the Japanese and the Italians represented. Yeah. And this, you know, without exaggeration, this was the verge of global domination by a handful of countries. Yeah. And, and that was one of those things where if you look at history's perspective from from the U.S. anyway, from the U.S. standpoint, there's a lot of times when we were put on our heels. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those, to say the least. And it caused us to, to rethink some things, uh, rethink strategy and, and maybe even go to the extremes. I mean, think of why we started the Manhattan Project. Right. I mean, that that's a good example. So, well, I'm about to tell you here might seem like it's complete Mm -hmm. sci-fi. It's 100% a real operation. It was incredibly close to being used. And the only way we know anything about this is because of release documents back in 1999. So let's start here. The story goes in the 1940s. Bombs were used to eliminate some coral reefs in the Pacific. And there's a a Navy officer by the name of E.A. Gibson. He noticed something very interesting. Now, I could go down a huge rabbit hole about this, just this, this scenario itself. But for the, for the focus of the episode, he noticed that these bombs that they were using to, to eliminate coral reefs triggered some very significant sized waves. Um, that single observation, though, is what would trigger Gibson to share his idea for a weapon uh, to the New Zealand Chief of General Staff, General Sir uh, Edward Puttick who then took the idea to the war cabinet, okay? So from there, Project SEAL had commenced. What was Project SEAL? The development of the tsunami bomb, okay? So 1940s. This sounds total sci-fi. Total I mean, it's... sci-fi. I have the document right here pulled up on one of my tabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually going to read from some of it uh, later on, but this is codenamed Project SEAL. The title of today's episode might might make some more sense now. The New Zealand military was working in conjunction with the U.S. Navy. They set off a series of underwater explosions that triggered tidal waves along the coast of New Caledonia in New Zealand. Now, ironically, Project SEAL began on June 6th, 1944, of course, the same day as the D-Day invasion. Uh, Today, which uh, the the area that that is known as Shakespeare Bay, north of Auckland, is a popular weekend spot for, for surfers, for paddleboarders, visitors. But during the last years of World War II, those same waters that we used to, to vacation and surf were now tossed about with 3,700 bombs. 
So mainly TNT, 3,700 bombs, they detonated during the early experiments. And those experiments suggested that a lot of sites say, quote, a cascade, which I think is a great uh, uh, visual, cascade of 10 large blasts, which was 2,000 tons in total. And it was it was five miles from the shore. So to put that in perspective, I mean, I think, you know, it seems like five miles is, is aquatically probably a long distance. But when you think of the amount of blasts that are taking place, right, it actually right. isn't isn't that that uh, that great of a distance. Those blasts, um, those cascades of blasts, created a thirty to forty foot tsunami wave, capable of inundating a, a small coastal city. So they're they're starting to make some tests, but they want to they want to call in some people rather than doing some minute tests. We're gonna we're, they're gonna expand out. So they call upon this professor by the name of Thomas Leach. He was the Dean of Engineering at Auckland University, and the report was, was released in 1950. Um, and I'm going to go right to page 18 of the report. Let's go primary source here, talk. So on page 18 of the 30-page document, it says three methods of generating wave systems have been examined through this project seal, okay? Letter A, waves produced by an impulse at the surface, which may take the form of mechanical impact by a solid or the expansion of a gas near the water surface. Letter B, waves produced by the expansion of the gas bubble resulting from the explosion of submerged charge. And letter C, waves produced by the action or, or excuse me, action of a relatively slow displacement under the water surface. Now, I can go in a lot more detail and read directly from the document, but I won't bore you with reading some of those uh, old documents. But these three methods really was, was an eye-opening um, example of R&D for the New Zealand military as mm -hmm. well as the U.S. Navy. So one of the things that that very wordy uh, report says is essentially, let's take some charges. Instead of putting them super deep into the ocean, let's put them towards the surface, and it should create a big enough wave to create a weapon out of. It's like you're in my head because as, as I'm visualizing this, and you said five, five miles. Five miles is not long. Right. Um, and if you're going to attack someone using this method, five miles is going to be tough to pull that off. I mean, True. the enemy is going to know you're up to something. So the idea of how is this going to be carried out? Do these get dropped off by ships? Do they get detonated from a remote you know, area? Do they have to be detonated closer by? This is fascinating. Yeah. And, and you know, Phil, as, as you describe it, you think to yourself, like, this is this is amazing that, that this was under consideration and actually got this far in the preparation, but it also, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with an island nation, you know, and, and the idea of using the elements and, and the environment to your advantage totally makes sense. You know, and, and you, you talk Manhattan Project, the secret behind the scenes, how did no one know about this? I think what's, what's unbelievable is it's five miles off the coast of New Zealand. You're in the Pacific. Japan is in, this, in, the, in mm -hmm. the Pacific. How do they not know? Right. You know, and right. you're probably thinking like satellite images, uh, they, they didn't really exist yet. Um, I mean, we talk about the U-2 spy plane a lot when, it, when you talk in Cold War, but that was our way of, of kind of espionage. But I mean, we're talking probably 20 years before that takes place. Right. right. So this was kept quite secret and very effective because you're, you're putting huge blasts in the mm -hmm. Pacific without the enemy ever knowing. Right. And it also goes to show, too, I mean, the, the number of civilian casualties this would have resulted in. Yeah. Just, again, the circumstances in World War II, the ends justify the means. If, right, we can end, right. if we can end this horrible war a year early and save, you know, casualty numbers, you know, in the long run, then it's worth it. 
So if we fast forward to May 30th, 1944, the New Zealand War Cabinet took up this request and established an uh, array research unit under Professor Leach that I mentioned to conduct, of course, top secret tests for a possible new bomb. So they did their, their cascades of, of different explosions, but they felt like they could create something from those tests that would be even more explosive and more uh, deadly. So around 150 people were assigned to the unit, which would use a fortress site in which New Zealand engineers could test, but the explosive in those ordinances that were used were provided by the US Navy. So it's kind of a, a conjunction project. But for a project this size, you can't just throw a few bombs in the water and hope for the best. There's a, a slew of other equipment um, that really needs to be produced in order for this to be a functional and reliable weapon. They had, I mean, if you're going to use it against some formidable enemies, it's got to be reliable. So they had to develop some remote wave recording devices, some radio controlled firing mechanisms, as well as specialized marine explosives. And remember, while all this was happening, you have to have a group of people that were observing the process. So British and American scientists collaborate and they start observing. Anyway, TNT was the explosive of choice, but the question then became, well, how much? Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, they experimented with almost 4,000 explosives with charges ranging from just a few grams to almost 700 pounds. But the experiments proved once again that single explosions would not generate a wave large enough to cause any damage at all let alone inundate and, and destroy enemy uh, defenses on the coast. Mm -hmm. So they realize that they have to detonate a very large number of bombs in unison rather than just setting off a nuke, you know, beneath the surface. So experts determined that the best way, a line of massive charges, charges totaling as much as 2,000 tons split up into 10 or so equal parts, detonated around five miles from the shore, would produce, in fact, a 40-foot high wave. That could, you know, take 45 out 45 foot wave. Yes. So, uh, I mean, a story in a building is 10 feet. So right. you're talking four and a half stories. Precisely. Wow. Yeah. So initially the research was conducted under a, a false assumption. Mm -hmm. And that was Great Britain joining. They said they'd already done studies on depth charges. And I immediately go to the movie U571. Correct. To think of that, that yep. uh, you know, explanation of, of depth charges. But they said... Um, you know, deep sea charges would, would cause a gas bubble that they actually mentioned in that report that I read. And that would work best to produce, quote, an offensive inundation when the bomb was very deep. But this was proved wrong since the studies did its job. The R&D they did showed um, that the biggest and most destructive wave could be produced if the charge was set uh, off close to the surface. But how close? One problem that the program discovered was that the depth at which the explosive was placed had to be exact. So even a small deviation from that optimum depth wouldn't produce energy needed to create a destructive force. And the tsunami would be more like a ripple than a mm. tidal wave. Okay. So I've, I've set the stage here, but after the break, we'll get into whether or not this was actually used and what the future entailed for Project SEAL. Welcome back. We're back from the break. Phil, I think the two things I really enjoy about your your story, number one, aside from, you know, Pearl Harbor and Hawaii, aside from Japan and island hopping, things like that, I'm really, it's always nice to hear more about World War II in, in this theater, hmm. that being the Pacific. So in the sense of like the role New Zealand's playing, yeah. I think that's pretty interesting. And the other thing is too, is this seems like um, it, it was right there to be used 
to yeah. effectively be carried out. They went mm-hmm. through all of the proper planning, right down to the, the minute details of just how far down these had to be placed in order to be effective. I guess the, the question I, I'm sure all of our listeners are waiting on is essentially why wasn't this why wasn't this used? Why did it not come to right. fruition? Was it timing? Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So to, to start, just to think timeline-wise, let's recap. The SEAL project began, remember, on June 6, 1944. It continued until it was eventually closed down officially on January 8, 1945, which, remember, is only a few months prior to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I think initially the tsunami bomb was seen as having the same offensive potential as the atom bomb which was still being secretly developed in the United States. However, at the beginning of 1945, the Allies appeared to be winning the war in the Pacific, and the operational priority of the SEAL project was was pretty much reduced to nothing. Because I, I don't know if they really anticipated this um, this atom bomb from, from being as immediately used as, as they had originally anticipated. So when the project was closed down, though, in, in early 1945, the experimental program, at least, was incomplete. The full military potential of the weapon really never came to mm-hmm. fruition. They never really realized what it was completely capable of. But as the late 1950s, uh, postgraduate engineering students at Auckland Universities, remember, uh, that's where Professor uh, Leach was from, were still working on the final summary of the 1940s experiments. Uh, so when it was completed, the report called The Generation of Wave Systems, tabulated and analyzed the statistical and scientific data from Project SEAL and, quote, it remains today an interesting handbook of how to make waves. So I I guess we could see that there was a vast amount of potential, but because of the effectiveness of the atom bomb, did you really need a secondary tsunami bomb? Not necessarily. So a New Zealand author and producer, though, who really took a vested interest, his name is Ray Wayru, and if I mispronounce his name, someone please correct me. He told the Daily Telegraph that, quote, if you put it in a James Bond movie, it would be viewed as fantasy. But it was a real thing. It was absolutely astonishing, he says. First, that anyone would come up with the idea of developing a weapon of mass destruction based on a tsunami. And also that New Zealand seems to have successfully developed it to the degree that it might have worked, end quote. So I think the concern over the effectiveness of the atom bomb was kind of like, how do I want to word this? Maybe the impetus behind Project Seal tsunami bomb. Um, Weiro continues to say, quote, presumably if the atom bomb had not worked as well as it did, we might have had a tsunami. We might be tsunamiing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a good point. So I think it was a secondary issue. They saw the effectiveness of the A-bomb. They said, hey, let's reduce the capacity of what we're doing here. There's no sense in, in developing it further for future wars. They're not anticipating World War III just yet. So let's let's hold off on that. Um, which there were some secondary issues with this, though, which I'll, I'll, I'll start to close it up here. James Carrion from MUFON, which I've never heard of this program before, but the Mutual UFO Network, huh. suggested that the project may have been a huge deception intended to deceive the Soviet Union into thinking that the United States had something even bigger in its arsenal than the atomic bomb. So he suggests... It could have been used to unmask spies or distract the Soviets into wasting time chasing like a frivolous or non-existent program. But from the perspective of, you know, current New Zealand attitudes of, towards nuclear weapons, I, it's pretty inconceivable that the country was ever involved in development of a weapon system like this um, to deliver, you know, destructive on, a destruction on such a massive scale. 
But either way, you know, New Zealand's, you know, working with the United States, all of this put together, the fact that it was declassified in 1999, I, we, we never would have known about this. And this is one of the reasons why I love stories like this, because, you know, after the initial shock and awe of this thing, you know, um, it's picked up by all sorts of people from historians, scientists, and eventually even, you know, conspiracy theorists, because in the wake of the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, the Japanese tsunami following uh, the earthquake in 2011, all of these conspiracy theorists started going back to this and saying, see, it's unprecedented that in recorded history for two major tidal waves to occur less than seven years apart. So, of course, you have these conspiracy theorists that are jumping all over this and saying, hey, let's go back to that 99, uh, 1999 declassified uh, program called Project SEAL. And let's let's, uh, you know, move towards un unraveling some of the things that were happening in Japan and the Indian Ocean tsunamis, which, of course, is 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 ludicrous. But at the same time, uh, it's just such an interesting story to talk about in the yeah. wake of World War Two. And it's <clears throat> it's tough to to fathom that the atomic bomb, which was just so devastating. Could have been less devastating than option B. Right. I mean, the, this a tsunami bomb could have potentially been, I would guess, even more destructive. And the idea of like harnessing, harnessing the environment and weather like this. Right. I, I can't. I'm sitting here trying to come up with a, a, another example, and I really can't from history of where we've been able to harness the power of nature. Yeah. With with regards like to what they were what they were trying to do here, yeah, that's, that's it's really pretty remarkable. Yeah, um, and it, and it's it's even more remarkable the fact that I, I think I even went into looking at my notes here, continue to experiment with these kind of technologies, uh, explosion generated waves through the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so t tons of money, tons of time. Uh, I think there was more than 150 people, as I said earlier before the break, that were involved in in analyzing this. So you have some people that are developing, you know, these kind of systems and, and pouring so much time and energy into developing weapons that harness the power of nature. It's pretty remarkable. And I'm sure uh, as time goes on, there'll be more stories that are unearthed and declassified because World War II is that that um, area where, as we said earlier, you're going into really desperate times and desperate, desperate right. measures right. to develop things that uh, are pretty inconceivable. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.